Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of realeverything.com. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Welcome back to The Whole View, episode 441. We are revisiting our very complex topic that we started last episode, 440, about vaccines. If you did not yet listen to that show, first go listen to it because this is a part two and we go into the science of vaccines and specifically how the mRNA vaccine for COVID-19 um, functions. No, we're not here to have a opinion debate. We all have our own, uh, own opinions on all of this, but what this show has always been is a scientific show. And we have gotten so many questions in particular about the current U.S. approved vaccines, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines that are currently being administered throughout the U.S. We're recording this on January 26th for reference of 2021. Um, and we're also going to answer some of the other questions that you guys have sent in touching on the additional strains and what we know about the science so far on if the vaccines will be effective on one or some of them. Um, and I know Sarah, you have a ton of notes. So I just <laughs> I just want to remind our listeners that if you want to see any of the scientific references, because everything that we talk about is based in science and facts. And I don't know if you're following Sharon Says So, but she like has this phrase that I'm just obsessed with, um, that facts don't have an opinion, whether you like them or not, they're facts. And so sometimes... I don't like things I hear either, but everything that we're going to discuss is based in scientific fact, and all of the resources, references are linked in our show notes on our website. So um, I, I just, I don't know how you're feeling, but I just want to thank our listeners because I had so many people reach out and thank us for taking a scientific approach and being willing to talk about this when... Um, we know that it is a complex issue that people have heightened emotion around and bringing truth and science and fact and history in just a very straightforward way, I think is what a lot of people were really needing. And so Sarah, I want to thank you for doing the research <laughs> and bringing that to the table. I, I mean, that is how we approach every topic that we cover on this show, but I think it's always more challenging when we know that we're getting into a topic that there is a lot more misinformation and disinformation out there to combat. So like when we ever were in that like myth busting role, that's always a more challenging place to be because it is really tough to present information um, when it contradicts something that somebody has already learned from a trusted source for them, right? Like, you know, that's one of the challenges of just like society right now is being able to sift through the vast amount of information on the internet, in social media, and be able to really, it's not even like fact check on the fly, right? It's like being able to decipher what is true and what isn't because a lot of things that aren't true are being presented as such. And it's, it's, it then 
takes on a life of its own. And so whenever we're presenting information that sort of contradicts um, these really pervasive myths on the internet, that is a really tough place for us to be. And I sort of second uh, your gratitude to our listeners for being open to this information and and actually um, not just being open to it, but being appreciative of it and, and craving it. So uh, this is why, once again, all of our listeners know we really would be besties in real life. It really is true because <laughs> you guys are the best. Um, so let's talk specifically about the two COVID mRNA vaccines. Um, I kind of want to recap sort of how mRNA vaccines work in about a minute, and then we'll get into like what's the difference between them, how these are working, and all of the clinical trial data, who who it works best in, all of that great stuff, all of the the myths. We'll talk about the new strains. Like there's so much to get into. I'm excited. This is the this is the meat. So give it to me. <laughs> Let's do it. So to briefly recap, the way that mRNA vaccines work, this is a very new platform. It is based on um, really actually like the technological advantages that made this possible. Like this is derived from like really cool research from just the last few years. Um, And in fact, Stacey, this is crazy because when we talked last week about some of the foundational science that led to the mRNA vaccine platform, what I didn't realize is that one of the scientists who was, is, is basically considered like the, one of the mothers of this technology, like her work is basically what like allowed us to figure out like how to get mRNA into cells, how to um, modify the ends of the mRNA so that the cell wouldn't attack it, but would instead, you know, translate it into protein. Her work was so cutting edge that she couldn't get grant funds. She ended up getting demoted. She nearly lost her entire academic career. At one point, her immigration status was in question and she almost got deported. And, you know, I finished last week's episode with, um, I believe rant is the right word, Uh, a little mini soapbox moment of why it's so important to fund basic science, because this technology comes out of scientific research that initially didn't look like it was going to be something that led to um, like this amazing uh, application that, you know, for us has the potential to, you know, protect us from um, this continuing global pandemic. And it very nearly, even this research that the mRNA vaccine is based on, very nearly didn't happen because of how poor the the granting situation currently is. So I just want to, to emphasize that um, this technology is really cool. And, um, and it's based on Uh, basic science, right? It's based on scientific research that's primary goal is to expand human knowledge. So what we know about mRNA is that it is the in-between step between the DNA in our nucleus that is a set of instructions for making a protein and the protein itself. And so what the, uh, both the Pfizer BioNTech and Moderna COVID-19 vaccines do is they deliver 
a small section of mRNA that encodes only one protein from the novel coronavirus. It is called the spike protein, and this is the part of the virus that actually binds with our ACE2 receptors that actually triggers entry into the cell and infection of the cell. So by encoding this very small piece of the novel coronavirus, A, it's not the whole virus. There's not, not an ability for infection from this one small strand of mRNA. But what it does is um, it is encapsulated into what's called a lipid nanoparticle envelope. Um, this envelope is made out of four different lipid molecules um, that trigger the cell to uh, internalize the mRNA through a process called endocytosis. And then the stability of this lipid envelope is so cleverly designed because then it also triggers what's called escape from the endosome, which basically means it tricks the cell into internalizing it. But then the way that it's internalized is not stable enough the way endosomes normally would be quite stable. So it allows the mRNA to enter the cytoplasm where ribosomes are just hanging out looking for mRNA to translate into protein. So what it does is literally just at the injection site, um, so just that one spot in your arm where these vaccines are injected, those cells uh, basically uh, engulf some of the uh, mRNA that is just for the novel coronavirus spike protein. Um, and actually, just for the novel coronavirus spike protein with a tiny little extra bit of sequence added, that means that when our cells find it and make the spike protein, they, they add this little thing called a transmembrane anchor, which means that the cell, when it sees this finished protein, goes, oh, you're supposed to be outside, anchored to the cell membrane, and transports this protein to the cell membrane um, so that the, the spike protein actually is on the outside of the cell where the immune system can be like, yo, you're not supposed to be here. You're, you're, you're foreign. We're going to mount an immune response to you. Some of the bioprotein is also presented through the major histocompatibility complex, which is a uh, sort of like a, a sentry system that all cells have for alerting the immune system to infection. So there's two ways that the spike protein is presented to the immune system. And basically, the foreignness of this protein that our cells are making is enough to stimulate a sufficient immune response. So these vaccines do not contain adjuvants. They don't have uh, typically an aluminum-based molecule added to them to ramp up the immune system in general um, because you can actually deliver not just a safe small subunit of a virus by just encoding a small section of it in the mRNA, but you also, by getting your cells to make the protein A, the protein is folded properly. That's a really big challenge in vaccine technology that is protein-based um, to keep the, the protein from unfolding in a wonky way. That means that whatever antibodies we make against it don't actually work against the real thing. That problem is solved with mRNA vaccine technology. And also, the just we can deliver more what's called antigen, right? So we actually can have more of the spike protein in our system to ramp up a completely targeted immune response. So the immune response is very analogous to if we actually got infected without the dangers of infection. And then what the, the studies have shown is that the 
the we produce a bunch of different kinds of antibodies um, and develop cellular immune responses as well, the same way we would against a natural infection to novel coronavirus um, as a result of our cells making this transmembrane anchored spike protein, um, thanks to the mRNA getting into the cells. And those antibodies, we know because they're, we've only put in the spike protein, they bind to the spike protein upon subsequent exposure to the actual novel coronavirus. And that effectively stops the coronavirus from being able to uh, bind with our ACE2 receptors and infect our cells. So that's why this is such an important target. Both the Pfizer and Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna vaccines are delivering, they're almost identical mRNA sequences. The difference between the vaccines is actually a very slight difference in the lipid nanoparticle envelope. So Moderna has been working on their lipid envelope technology for about 10 years. Um, so it's a little bit more advanced technology, and that's why their vaccine is a little bit more stable under warmer temperatures, still freezing temperatures, but like normal freezer compared to the ultra-cooled temperatures that the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine needs to be stored at. Um, and the only other ingredients in these vaccines are some pH buffering agents. Um, and they, they contain um, what's called tromethamine, which is a very well understood drug for treating metabolic acidosis some acetic acid and sodium acetate, which are natural short-chain fatty acids found in our blood, and sucrose as a cryostabilizer. There's nothing, um, there's no ingredient in these vaccines that is, is really wonky, which is one of the other things that makes this technology so exciting. Um, and what's, you know, really amazing for me, just looking at the science of it, is that um, because it's the timing. It's it's the timing of the advances in this technology and some of the clinical trials using mRNA vaccines for personalized cancer treatment um, and for some other infectious organisms like HIV. Um, those clinical trials and the advances to get this technology to those clinical trials just in the last four to five years are what allowed for this very rapid um, production of um, effective COVID uh, vaccines. And so it's it's really just, I mean, in some ways it's luck of the timing. If COVID had hit five years ago, these, these vaccines would not have been able to be produced as quickly and effectively. I want to go back to your original soapbox for a moment mm -hmm. and just remind people that if that's what you're into, if you... If you love our little rants <laughs> about um, funding science and, um, gosh, what was my rant? Um, about the limitations of the healthcare system to vulnerable populations. Uh -huh. You can find our personalities infused with what we really think about this over on Patreon. I know we usually don't talk about it mid-show or top of show, but for those of you that have not yet joined the Patreon fam, this might be a time that you want to do that to hear what we really think about all this stuff. So we are going to officially jump into moving forward. But if you do want to recap, just a reminder, more than, you know, just a few minutes long, we went really in depth on the science of that last week in episode 440.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So one of the things that I want to talk a little bit about before we get into the data from the phase two, three clinical trials in both of these vaccines and look at the safety profile and the side effects and the efficacy data and the subgroup analysis, which is something that I think is really important, especially for our listeners who I know are all uh, high information consumers um, and who are looking to really understand um, the full ins and outs of these vaccines in order to make um, decisions in their own lives, as well as help their families and friends um, get the information that they need to make their decisions. Um, I think it's important to kind of talk a little bit about this spike protein because of the new strains that are emerging um, or new variants of concern. They're not, they technically are not different enough to be called new strains yet. Um, but they are called variants of concern. Um, you've probably seen the news about the UK variant of the novel coronavirus or the South African variant. There's also a Brazilian variant um, that uh, there was uh, a news story just or a press release just yesterday that the first confirmed case of the Brazilian variant is now in America. And like, what does this mean for the vaccines? So one of the reasons why these are called variants of concern, I used air quotes that nobody can see because this is an audio medium, but just, just listen to my air quotes as I say the words variant of concern. See, I did it again. Um, but the, the reason why they're uh, concerning is that they have a couple of mutations um, that actually change the virology. So they actually make a functional change. So there's, you know, one of the things that has... Um, been a natural consequence of how prevalent COVID-19 infection has been in America, but also all over the world, is even though this is a virus that mutates very slowly, it has some machinery for proofreading when it's replicating itself inside our cells. Um, and because of that, it tends to, um, it tends to, to retain its sequence, uh, with higher integrity than other viruses, right? Like influenza virus on the other side of the spectrum um, mutates so quickly that we're being infected with different strains every winter. Um, the novel coronavirus we know is not mutating very quickly, but because it has had so many millions and millions and millions of opportunities to mutate, every time it infects a person, that's another opportunity to mutate. Um, we are seeing a collection of mutations and there are um, quite a lot of what are called variants. So a variant is one where there's a handful of mutations um, and including these, these three variants that we know actually potentially change something functional about the virus. So the UK variant, um, for example, and the South Af African variant actually have um, a mutation in common called N501Y. Um, and that mutation is actually... Um, changing how easily the spike protein 
binds to our ACE2 receptors and also is speeding up the replication rate. And effectively what that does is it means that we need uh, exposure, the the infectious dose is a little bit lower. So um, we don't need to be exposed to as many viral particles to actually get sick and get infected. And it means that a person who is infected is potentially shedding a lot more viral particles in that window of 0.7 days um, before symptoms onset when they are contagious and have no idea that they're sick. And so those two things together mean that um, this virus is basically more contagious. And the, the estimates right now, there's a lot more data that needs to be done because um, especially America's is doing a, a pretty poor job in sequencing um, uh, coronavirus from different people and tracking different um, variants. Um, so other countries that are doing a better job have detected these variants and been able to show through population dynamics that they are more contagious. Um, but we know that the UK strain, for example, is anywhere between 40 and 80% more contagious. Um, there was some preliminary data that was just released this week showing that it may also have a slightly higher incidence of um, severe courses of disease and potentially mortality. That data hasn't been peer-reviewed yet. So it's it's um, it's very early data. It's very hard for, for me to make any kind of um, value judgments on data that is that preliminary. Um, but it is because um, it the higher mortality rate could literally just be because it's so much more infectious, more people are are getting it. And so if you make it easier to get, potentially vulnerable populations are getting it more easily, even though they're taking other precautions. So there's other explanations for that data other than the true sort of virology. Um, so these are concerning variants. Um, there's a couple pieces of really good news. So both... Um, uh, Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna have tested um, at least in vitro, which means like in a in a test tube, um, they've tested the antibodies produced, how the antibodies produced by um, patients from their clinical trials with their vaccines, how they bind to um, the UK strain and shown pretty much equal binding to the original strain. So we know that these vaccines are highly likely to protect us equally against the UK strain. They just released data actually yesterday, Moderna did, uh, released a press release showing that their binding against the South African strain is lower. The South African strain has a couple of other mutations that are making it more of a challenge because it's a, a different enough that um, monoclonal antibodies don't seem to bind to it very well. So the monoclonal antibody treatments that um, are out there may not be effective against it. That also means convalescent plasma doesn't look like it's going to be terribly effective against it. But what Moderna was able to show that even though they had a substantially lower amount of um, neutralizing antibody binding, it was still enough. Um, it was still above the threshold that would um, indicate that their vaccine would be protective. So it's potentially not as protective against the South African strain as it is against the normal strain, but it will still lend some protection. Um, and Moderna's already working on a additional booster for their vaccine that will increase protection against the South African variant. Um, the South African variant is also the one um, 
like the UK variant has already traveled far and wide, but the far and wide, but the Brazilian variant and the South African variant have not traveled as far yet. So there's also time for adaptation of the vaccines to make them more effective against these variants. And that's another huge advantage to the mRNA vaccine platform is adaptability. Um, so you could completely imagine a situation where in the next, say, two years of really completely like eradicating, uh, you know, COVID-19, um, that there may be every few months a new booster to, to handle a new strain um, and that we could end up with sort of the situation where we're like, continuously adapting, but every time it should be easier as also all of the infrastructure around distribution are, are figured out. And I know we'll talk about that in a little bit. It has been interesting in one of those conversations I text you about. Yes. <laughs> and I know many of our listeners are asking the same question. And, you know, while we're looking at the, the data and sharing what we know, we also know that as time goes on, we learn more. That's how science goes. So um, I like that there is already this technology that is so flexible that we talked about. Um, obviously, it takes time and safety screening and all of that kind of stuff. But just knowing how quickly this came to be with this new technology, the fact that they're already working on a booster for the updated strain just is like one of those like brain exploding emojis for me in terms of like what that timeline looks like and how different it will be from, you know, 10 years ago or whatever. So. Yeah, this is probably a good point to reiterate. Um, you know, this was a myth we busted in our, the part one of the series, but I think it's really important to reiterate here, which is that these vaccines um, came to market. I'm using air quotes again. Um, they went from design to arms <laughs> and um, distribution um, you know, they, they broke records, right? It's the fastest vaccine ever developed. It wasn't because there were any corners cut. There were a couple of reasons why this vaccine could be developed as quickly. The first is just inherent to this technology. One of the main advantages of this technology is rapid design uh, development and distribution. Um, that is just an awesome thing about the mRNA vaccine platform. The other thing is sort of unprecedented um, investment in vaccine uh, development. And so a lot of steps that, you know, safety tests that would in normal times be done sequentially could be done in parallel. Um, so there were a lot of different things that could happen at the same time that normally, right, if the, if the investment was entirely the company's investment, they would go step by step because they want to pull the plug at any point if things don't work out and not waste any more money on developing this thing. By infusing a ton of government dollars and private dollars um, into, into the development of these vaccines, there, the companies weren't taking on uh, the financial risk uh, in case the vaccine didn't work out. So they were able to basically do a bunch of things that would normally be done one at a time all at the same time to to basically do all of the proof of concept type experiments, um, which meant that phase two, three clinical trials could start really quickly after development. So th those things together are like why this was able to happen so quickly. I think it's really important to go through the, the phase two, three clinical trial data because, um, you know, we, as we talked about on part one of this show, the 
tolerance for um, severe adverse reactions to vaccines is actually much lower than it is to other types of drugs or medical interventions. And that's because vaccines are given to a broader population. And so it's it's actually the safety standards are the highest of anything that we do. I mean, like about as high as, as vitamins would be, right? Like it's, it's really... Um, it's really important that vaccines are safe because we're giving them to healthy people. Um, the The standard is a little bit less when you're trying to treat a disease and that's you're developing some kind of pharmaceutical for that. So, um, so it's really important to kind of emphasize that um, these, both of these vaccines have gone through a very rigorous um, safety and efficacy evaluation. I think it's especially helpful, too, because we see the worst case scenarios heightened by the news and social media. Mm -hmm. And it's not that we aren't aware that those things are happening, but we also because we talked last week about how they are closely tracked, they're looked into they're you know, all of that kind of stuff. Um, But I think when you're someone, for example, who has a compromised immune system and you are reading in the news how, you know, stay away from the vaccine because you could have an allergic reaction. Um, first of all, that's a non-medical professional giving you <laughs> medical advice. And <laughs> yeah. this is our opportunity to remind you we are not medical professionals and we encourage you to talk to your medical professional. We are here to give you facts and educate you for you to take forward that information to do with the decisions that you and your medical professionals make. However, um, if the only thing that someone has as a source of information is this negative version of the worst case scenarios as our, that is what our media system does because that's how you get people to click, right? Um, Then it, it skews the perspective of safety for sure. And it's, it's not to say that that reaction might not be happening for someone, but we can't possibly make assumptions as to why. And we need to focus on the facts and the science. And that's what I love. Me too. Uh, We should be friends. (laughs) Maybe we should do a podcast. I know. That would be such a great idea. Oh, Uh. we're embarrassing. It is (laughs) such an embarrassment. Okay, let's move on and just talk about data then. Um, so let's talk about um, the phase two, three clinical trials. So phase two clinical trials assess safety, phase three assess efficacy, um, and it is completely possible, depending on what you're assessing, to do both in the same clinical trial. So when you do both in the same clinical trial, it is called a phase two three or phase two slash three clinical trial. And so that's what was done. That is what the emergency use authorization from the FDA was based on was the results from these phase two slash three clinical trials for both the Pfizer BioNTech and the Moderna COVID-19 vaccines. And these have been published now. Uh, They've gone through peer review, right? They've gone through a very extensive uh, independent review in order to provide recommendations to the FDA for their review process. So there's been a lot of uh, expert scientific eyes on this data, including on the the very granular individual data. Um, So I kind of want to emphasize that a little bit that um, there, the, uh, you know, I, I think the 
all of the people who are involved with the production of these vaccines are acutely aware that this is not one to mess up and um, and that messing this up could mess up vaccination forever. Um, and so there was a, a very rigorous process to get these approved. Um, so let's look at what the, the data actually shows. So there's, in terms of efficacy, there's two main measurements they're looking at. They're looking at how effective these vaccines are at preventing infection. And infection was basically measured as a positive test and a symptom of disease. Um, and then they also looked at how effective um, their vaccines were at preventing severe disease, which is any disease requiring hospitalization. And so the Pfizer-BioNTech, um, their vaccine was 95.3% effective at preventing COVID-19. Moderna was 94.1% at preventing COVID-19. And that might make you go, well, like, I want the Pfizer-BioNTech one because it was 95.3 instead of 94.1. But it's important to emphasize that the confidence interval basically completely overlaps. Um, so it is basically the same number. Um, they're both, right, you both basically say they're both about 95%. Um, and that will, that data as, you know, it's really important to also emphasize that efficacy and safety is continuously monitored through distribution. Um, they can't do as many tests if you're not enrolled in the, in a clinical trial where they say, come back after, you know, eight months and we're going to test to see how many antibodies in your blood. That is something that is specifically done to the people who enroll in the clinical trials. But um, there is still ongoing monitoring of cases in people who were vaccinated, as well as um, the, the severe disease in people who are vaccinated, as well as the safety data that we'll, we'll get into. So it is something that is, um, that number will crystallize as distribution ramps up. So basically, in terms of efficacy for preventing infection, they're about the same. In terms of severe disease, um, the Pfizer-BioNTech was 90% at effective at preventing severe disease, and the Moderna was 100% effective at preventing severe disease. And I'm going to repeat the exact same thing. If you look at the confidence interval, they basically overlap. So it's somewhere between 90 and 100% effective. Um, and so it's it's their, their efficacy is basically the same um, in terms of um, and it, like, it's what you would expect, right? They're, de they're delivering basically the same mRNA. Um, there's a slight difference in their delivery envelope of lipids, right? So, um, so this data at this point, um, in terms of the statistics, they're, they're basically identical. I mean, I'm I'm going to move forward with what's available to me as soon as it's available. How about that? <laughs> yeah. Ditto. Um, yes, uh, me too. I will. I would put either one of these into my arm. Absolutely, and I I hope to in the near future. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how long uh, that immunity lasts because this leads to a couple of things that we still don't know, but also some really interesting implications. So um, we previously covered on, the sh on one of our coronavirus shows that immunological memory for coronaviruses is typically quite low. So we talked about studies looking at common cold causing coronaviruses that showed the immunological memory was maybe as low as a year. 
um, and up to about five or six years for SARS, which was the coronavirus responsible for the SARS outbreak in 2002-2003. So one of the things that we don't know right now is how long our immunological memory for SARS-CoV-2, the the virus that causes COVID-19, actually lasts. Um, There have been studies um, with natural infection showing that there's still measurable, uh, at least cellular immunity, if not humoral immunity, humoral equals antibodies, cellular equals memory cells, um, eight months out. So that's good news. Um, And we know from the vaccines that we have at least still full protection at four months. That's been measured in the um, clinical trials, and that is ongoing measurements that are still being happening with all of the patients who enrolled in the phase two, three clinical trial. What is really cool is that there was one paper that actually compared the antibody levels four months out from receiving the vaccine versus four months out from natural infection and showed higher antibodies after vaccine. And this is likely because coronaviruses are able to manipulate our immune systems to evade detection. Um, We talked about this again on one of our coronavirus shows where they actually can interfere with the production of interferons. Um, I just realized I said interfere with interferons and that's kind of funny. Um, But the interferons are one of the classes of cytokines that our immune cells produce that are specifically involved in the response to viruses. And then we also know that coronaviruses are pretty good at interfering with what's called antigen presentation. So we talked about um, cells having this like way of monitoring itself for infection and then showing the immune system through the major histocompatibility complex that it's been infected. Um, So we know that coronaviruses also interfere with that process. And because of that, um, you know, if we're infected with SARS-CoV-2, one of the reasons why this is typically, even in its mild case, a fairly protracted disease course, um, and um, why it's it's uh, the the severe consequences tend to involve this overreaction of the immune system is because the virus gets this crazy head start and replicating itself before the immune system, the other sort of aspects of the immune system that are not being manipulated by this virus can kind of kick in and start fighting it off. And that is you know, also one of the reasons why the immunological memory for these viruses isn't as high as our memory is for other infectious diseases. So the super cool thing about the vaccine is you're you're basically teaching the immune system about this virus without the manipulation of the immune system. Um, you're just showing the immune system, here's this spike protein that's not supposed to be here, and it's bad, we should fight this off. And you're not interfering with interferon production. And even without adjuvants, you're not like artificially um, overstimulating the immune system either. And so this has the capacity. We still need more data. We need to follow this for longer. But there's the capacity here for the immunological memory from the vac- from getting the vaccine against COVID-19 to be longer and more effective than the immunological memory following natural infection. And one of the, the consequences of this is uh, it is CDC guidelines that even if you have had um, COVID-19, 
that it's still beneficial to get the vaccine. They recommend waiting 90 days after recovery um, to just allow your immune system to have a moment to calm down after infection before getting the vaccine. But but this is this is why um, it's because of this higher efficacy rate and the understanding the mechanisms, um, the ability to predict that the vaccine may be actually more efficacious than natural infection at uh, longer lasting immunity. It's definitely one of those questions I've been, well, not anymore. I texted you about a while ago, so (laughs) I know that you've done extensive research because I forced it upon you. Um, And I, it is interesting to me and makes more sense too, as we start to talk about different strains and, and all of that kind of stuff. So, um, I guess, you know, my biggest concern has always been where the science is not exactly sure on um, who, what, or why people might get it again and all that kind of stuff. And so I am I would like to err on the side of caution. Thank you. <laughs> um, yes, I, uh, I also, um, uh, if I had had COVID-19, I would still be in line. <laughs> for the vaccine. Um, So yes, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the subgroup analysis when it comes to efficacy. So um, one of the things that's really important, because I know that a large um, number of people in our our audience are people with autoimmune disease and other chronic illnesses. Um, These people were not excluded from the phase two, three clinical trial. So the phase two, three clinical trial really tried to get good representation across all types of subgroups. But because autoimmune disease is not actually a risk factor for severe COVID, it is if you're on strong immunosuppressant drugs, but autoimmune disease by itself, right? I don't take steroids or uh, disease-modifying drugs, so I'm not considered high risk for for COVID. I act as though I am because um, COVID's terrible, um, but on on paper, my doctor would agree I'm not technically high risk. Um, so one of the things that that the implications of that is that people with autoimmune disease were absolutely included in these clinical trials, but there was no subgroup analysis on autoimmune disease. Instead, there was subgroup analysis on age um, and different sort of age bins because we know that older age is a high risk factor, on sex, on race, ethnicity, on baseline body mass index, and the presence of coexisting conditions. Um, So the coexisting conditions are the ones that we know increase risk of of severe disease. So um, uh, high... Um, or extreme obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, uh, liver disease, uh, chronic uh, lung disease, uh, and um, Moderna included, they had HIV participants, so they included a subgroup analysis for immunosuppressed um, people, um, although Pfizer did not. Um, also, both both clinical trials did have a small number of pregnant women, so pregnancy was not actually Um, it was supposed to be an exclusion. So you were not supposed to be pregnant when you enrolled for the clinical trials, but, uh, some pregnancies happened, um, as sometimes is the case. 
Um, and so those people were still followed. Um, the data on pregnancy is still pretty rudimentary because they weren't intentionally included in the clinical trials. So looking at efficacy, um, you know, one of the concerns for people with autoimmune disease, because our immune systems tend not to be super awesome, right? There is, there are studies from other vaccines showing that maybe um, an extra booster is sometimes required for someone with autoimmune disease to really ensure a proper immunity against whatever it is. In this case, even if you think about, right, so approximately two-thirds of autoimmune disease sufferers are women, you kind of look at um, look at the 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 sex differences in efficacy, it's it's basically uh, within the margin of error. Um, looking at all of these different potential differences to look for a signal from autoimmune disease, it's not there. So generally the vaccine efficiency ranges from 86% to 100% in all of these different subgroups. 86% maybe sounds like, but I don't want 86, I want 95, 95 is what I want. Um, it's an average and it's um, the the biggest change is actually in older participants and 86% is still highly protective. Um, and it's a good point here to sort of remind our listeners that even though we get personal protection with a vaccine, getting vaccinated is not about personal protection, it's about community protection. And community protection, honestly, you know, at the beginning of the vaccine development, um, public health officials were like, even if it's 50%, we're going for it. Like 50% was going to be considered uh, acceptable for a mass vaccination program. Um, the fact that we're at like a minimum of 86% is super good news. Well, I think it's also important to kind of revisit the idea that just because you have the vaccine doesn't mean that it's safe to go about your life the way that you would have pre-pandemic. So specifically, yes. you are still going to need to social distance because you could be carrying the live virus that is shedding onto people who have not yet had the vaccine. And you yourself wouldn't be symptomatic or sick, hopefully. Um, but you could be giving it to other people. This is why we wear masks to protect mm -hmm. others. So combining the vaccine with what we know works from the scientific literature of social distancing and wearing masks, then you're at a percentage where you we can actually make a difference and yeah. move forward. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that, I mean, I, I think it's important to sort of talk about what we don't know yet about these vaccines. We don't know how long... Um, immunity is going to last. So we don't know if this is something that is going to become an annual booster when we go to get our annual checkup, or if this is going to become like meningococcal vaccine where immunity, you know, a booster would be every three years if you were um, in a high risk situation, or if it's going to be like tetanus and you need a booster every 10 years, or if it's going to be like measles. And once you've gone through, you know, your round of vaccines, you're good for life. Right. And it could be, I mean, Based on what we know about coronaviruses, we expect it to be shorter. Um, we expect it to be something where there is going to need to be a booster um, m maybe every one to five years, somewhere in that range. Um, but we just don't know yet. Um, that is something that we can only know as time goes on and more data is collected and more scientific studies are performed. Um, the other thing that we don't know 
as if it's possible to get an asymptomatic case after being vaccinated. And it's potentially um, even more likely. So it may not protect against infection um, sort of unilaterally. It may protect against symptomatic infection. That's still really good because it's symptomatic infection that can lead to um, the severe right courses of disease, the long-term effects from severe disease, long COVID, which is a whole separate thing, and those things we've already talked about on the show. So if it's possible to have an asymptomatic case after being vaccinated, then getting vaccinated doesn't necessarily stop the spread until much later in the vaccination protocol. Um, and so that's why we are being asked, even after getting vaccinated against COVID-19, to continue all of the public safety protocols that we've been doing for the last, uh, coming up on 11 months now. Um, and it's, it's, it's because there's this open question about what the probability is of asymptomatic infection after vaccination. I'm, I'm in. Whatever I need to do to help myself and others, sign me up. Hand raised. I volunteer as tribute. (laughs) But you don't need to be a tribute because these vaccines are incredibly safe. So let's talk about the safety data. Um, There's no, uh, you know, the one person living at the end gets to live in Panem forever. What? Is that how it goes? I feel like like the people who did the studies were volunteering as tribute. I feel (laughs) like at this point, we're all just like seeing that there's nobody left on the field and being like, I'll go in. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> We're the tourists afterwards. Uh, yes. Okay. So let's let's talk about the safety data. So um, the in terms of safety data, what was tracked was every possible thing that could possibly happen. So they were tracking things that you would totally expect from a vaccination. Um, these were the things that were the most common. These are called side effects, right? Um, they're not adverse reactions because. Uh, you know, they're not fun, but they resolve by themselves. They don't need any kind of medical intervention. And they're the things that you would normally associate with a vaccination. Um, Most common was what are called injection site reactions. So that's like uh, my arm hurts or I have a bruise or maybe there's a little swelling. Um, all, All of those things, right, at the injection site, that was a very common side effect. Uh, fatigue, headache, muscle pain, chills, joint pain, and fever were also reported in a very similar frequency to other vaccinations. Um, Severe reactions were very, very rare. And um, it's also important to sort of emphasize that these types of reactions really are telling us that our immune system's working. There was a slightly higher rate of these types of side effects, um, expected side effects after the second vaccine, um, or the second injection, I should say. And that's also expected. So one of the reasons why these are two-shot vaccinations is because there's no um, ramping up of the immune system with an adjuvant, um, we're basically teaching the immune system about this horrible spike protein that we want to remember to fight off next time with the first injection. And then the second one, it's called a booster, right? So it basically ramps up 
a stronger immune response the second time, which basically uh, creates a stronger immunity and a longer lasting immunological memory. There's not a lot of analysis of how effective the vaccines were after one shot, because that was basically only done in people who dropped out of the trial for whatever reason. Um, And so there's a little bit of data on what happens if you only get one shot. It indicates that maybe it's 80% effective compared to 95%, but it would be expected to be shorter-lived immunity. So it's very important to get both shots um, when you get vaccinated. Um, But this is that that little bit of data is why there are some governments who are basically not holding a second dose um, it like in order to vaccinate more people with that first dose and accept maybe this means that they won't necessarily get the second dose at the at precisely the three week mark. Maybe it'll be five weeks because of all of the supply chain challenges, but we're going to make that trade. And that's you know, that's a really tough call. Um, Those types of calls are made by looking at population level data. Since we're not talking to public health officials um, making this type of of policy decision on this podcast, we're talking to individuals who are just trying to decide if they're going to make an appointment when it's available for uh, their demographic in their area. Um, We're going to emphasize the importance of getting both shots and getting it on schedule. Um, And the reason for that is unknowns, right? So um, it's been tested in this particular configuration. This is what we know. This is what we have the data for. Um, And, you know, these companies can't make any guarantees to efficacy um, if we mess around with their protocol. I um, have been kind of fascinated watching the way different countries are rolling it out and, and doing all of that. And I I just am like, hi, um, did you read the directions? Like, did you? <laughs> Anybody? Well, again, I mean, it's, there's a lot of, um, a lot of types of decisions where there's like no right answer. Um, and this is one of them, right? Um, you know, if you're if you're a government and you're trying to control an outbreak, you're looking at uh, the benefit of injecting twice as many people, and they maybe don't have as long lasting immunity or as high percentage of immunity now. But when you sort of multiply over entire populations, that could still reduce infections and hospitalizations and mortality compared to holding back that second dose, but only getting, you know, the better immunity and have as many people. It's kind of, it's one of those, you know, it's a catch 22. There's, you know, it's, it's like, uh, what I really want is to be able to just like magically fly plane and syringes fall out of it and falls directly into people's arms. Then I don't know. I don't, I'm not signing (laughs) up for that. Um, (laughs) It, okay, it doesn't it's, it doesn't exist. But like that, I mean, the the perfect situation would be able to vaccinate everybody all at once, right? And and just have it. And unfortunately, um, the laws of physics prevent that. I hear you, and it it in theory makes sense. And normally, I'm a rebel tendency who is all about breaking the rules. But there are a few things where I'm like. I understand why the rules exist and I'm willing to sign up for them. <laughs> so, I, I hear you. I get it. Um, I just, 
I would I would be like, I'm coming like I'm coming back. I'm setting a calendar reminder. Like it's I'm following the instructions, you know? Yeah. Um for sure. I mean, yes. I uh, I agree. Um I'm glad I'm not a person who has to make these decisions. Let's let's just put it that way. Um let's talk about severe potentially life-threatening adverse events. Um, in part one of this um, episode or series, we went over the um, actual statistics for vaccine-induced injury. And so um, these were, again, like every possible thing was tracked um, for these vaccines. And um, and so, for example, um, in the Pfizer-BioNTech phase two, three clinical trials, there were 38 participants who had a life-threatening adverse um, event um, it, uh, from anywhere from the time they got their first dose to like a month after the second dose, which is uh, where I grabbed these statistics. It's been followed out farther than that since, um, but it's not reported as, as, method as methodically yet. Um, of those 38 participants, 18 of them were in the vaccine group and 20 were in the placebo group. So that type of data, um, and Moderna had very similar data, um, and no matter how you break down the subgroup analysis, it's very similar. Um, basically, the uh, likelihood of something pretty bad happening was identical in the vaccine group versus the placebo group. That indicates that those adverse events were random. They were just things that were going to happen to that person anyways. Um, there's no signal from either of the phase two, three clinical trials for any, um, you know, vaccine-induced injury that would be of particular concern. Now, here's where it's really important to emphasize. When you look at the statistics of vaccine-induced injury from our part one of this series. And we talked about, for example, the risk of a severe allergic reaction is about one in a million, depending on the vaccine. Um, it is not expected that that type of very rare um, adverse reaction to a vaccine would be picked up in a phase two, three clinical trial, just numbers and statistics. Um, if you picked up a severe allergic reaction and even had one person in, you know, a clinical trial of 45,000 people, you would be really worried because that would imply one in 45,000, not one in a million. Um, and if you had two, you would be freaked out and you'd probably pause the trial and try to figure out what was going on. Um, so these are very, very carefully I think monitored I remember trials. There was a pause. Am I there was a pause in the AstraZeneca um, yeah. So I'm it, just, I'm just pointing yeah. out like this, you're not just supposing like this is what is happening. And yes. Yes. Um, yeah. So this is, I mean, they, they're, this is, everyone takes the safety very, very seriously. Um, so looking through um, all of the data, right. And the, you know, I've read all of the papers I've read the FDA reports, which is like 54 pages for the Moderna vaccine and like 92 pages for the Pfizer vaccine. All of the data is broken down in every possible way throughout it. And we will link to all of those in the show notes so you can go and look at the data yourself if if looking at that data um, will um, appease any you know fears and, and make you feel more confident. Um, but right now, um, what we can say is 
that the risk of a severe adverse reaction due solely to the vaccine is very, very low. Um, and things that are on the, you know, likelihood of one in a million are things that we're not actually going to see until distribution super ramps up. I mean, if you, um, like right now, at, if, if there was a, a one in a million um, sort of likelihood, we would expect to see like 10 or 15 examples. So those are being monitored. Um, and for example, right, so we have seen, um, once these vaccines are being distributed, we have seen some severe allergic reactions. Those were not picked up in the clinical trials. Um, they appear to be a very, very small rate. Um, and because it's a small rate, they're still trying to figure out exactly what it is in the vaccine that is causing the allergic reaction. The most likely candidate is one of the lipid nanoparticles in the envelope, which is based on the molecule polyethylene glycol, which is a lipid that is in some other medications. It's in some other vaccines. It is a major a molecule in a lot of laxatives. And it is known that there is a potential for a very rare allergic reaction to polyethylene glycol. That's what they think um, is behind it right now. And that's why they've sort of said, if you're a person who carries around an EpiPen um, and have multiple anaphylactic type allergies, maybe hold off until we figure out exactly what the thing is that is causing this reaction. Um, but if you're not a person who carries around an EpiPen, um, then, and, and even like if you have taken uh, a medication that contains polyethylene glycol in the past and not had a reaction to it, um, there's no particular reason, again, talk to your doctor because your doctor knows your situation and I don't, um, but uh, there is not another candidate, right? So there's no egg protein in this, which is something that causes anaphylactic reactions in some other vaccines. Um, there's no latex unless a, a syringe containing latex is used, which would be an unusual situation. Um, there's no gelatin, that, right? Like the, the proteins, there's no antibiotic, right? The things that we know can potentially cause allergic reactions in other vaccines are not present in these. Um, so the the only candidate that they've been able to identify, again, is polyethylene glycol. That the rate of allergies against polyethylene glycol are very low. When you say very low or very, very low, can you give percentages or statistics? Or I, I know you kind of fleetingly mentioned one in a million, but when someone says to me, your chance of adverse reaction is very low, like I want to know statistically, what are you looking at? Because is it one in 100, 1%? Is it one in 1,000, one in 1 million? You know what I yeah. mean? One 1% 1 is not very low. Yeah, exactly. Um, I know that, but I want you to tell the listeners 1%, that. 1% <laughs> is very high. So um, in uh, the United States, um, there were six cases of anaphylaxis reported uh, among the first 272,001 vaccinations. So that is a higher rate than one in a million. Um, and all of those, this is why the protocol is once you get vaccinated, you sit there uh, and we wait, right? Because we know that anaphylactic allergies are very rapid um, once an antigen is introduced. So these are all, these were all situations where the anaphylaxis was treated. Um, you know, like those people are all fine. 
Um, and you can still develop immunity, even if you have that type of allergic reaction that doesn't prevent the immunity from developing. Um, so that is at this point, the data that we have, um, there haven't been a lot of others like it, that, um, you know, basically like one in 50 ish thousand right early on has not held. Um, so we are now at a level where there's been something like 15 ish, 20 ish million people have been vaccinated. Um, and there haven't been a whole lot more cases of anaphylaxis. So probably again, this is like, we don't really, we can't really stick a number to it until we have a lot more data, but we're probably talking about something more on the level of one and a quarter million to one and half a million, um, at the most. Um, but again, right. It's these, this type of data is not right. When it's something that is that low of a frequency, we need a lot more occurrence to be able to nail down what the actual risk is. And is anaphylaxis the kind of overarching only thing that we're seeing um, for adverse reactions at this point? In the last show, we talked about, you know, a, a number of other things as well. Yeah. So in the last show, we talked about things like um, Guillain-Barre syndrome. We have not seen that um, as a result of this vaccine yet. Um, we talked about uh, immune thrombocytopenic uh, purpura. Um, there was one case um, in a, a doctor in Florida, um, but it has not been conclusively linked to this vaccine. Um, so he, had, he did get the vaccine, but this is an autoimmune disease that does occur with, uh, you know, a frequency in the general population. Um, that is the only case of that that we've seen. Um, and in part because... Um, some of the side effects include diarrhea, right? Flu-like symptoms. Um, there have been some cases in elderly, terminally ill patients in the Netherlands um, where they passed away after getting the vaccine. And that has sort of made really splashy headlines. But again, um, those haven't been tied to the vaccines. They were terminally ill patients in hospice. Um, and so it's unknown at this point if those deaths are actually linked to it. And it, it may just be that those were such um, basically like fragile bodies, dying bodies, that adding a little diarrhea and a little bit of a fever was too much. Um, and so because of that, there is a conversation happening until they can investigate those cases in more detail about um, holding back the vaccine from very specifically terminally ill um, elderly people. I can tell you that my 98-year-old grandmother got her vaccine two weeks ago, um, and they they did the, her entire long-term care hospital and there were no adverse reactions. That's like personal experience of one location, but um, it's important to sort of say like, that's not something that has been seen across the board. Um, it was, uh, it was just this one, you know, piece of, of um, data. Um, and it, it's still, again, it's, it hasn't been conclusively linked to the vaccine, but, we're all taking this very seriously. Um, and so if there's any indication, right, that's why 
there's any indication of a possibility of a severe reaction caused by the vaccine, the clinical trials are being paused while they investigate and try to um, figure out if there's a direct link or if it's just something unfortunate that happened to that person. Um, and that's that's the case as, um, as the vaccine is being distributed with the continuous monitoring um, for efficacy and safety. I want to point out that these adverse reactions are things that we talked about in the first show. We're talking about now because education and understanding the actuality of what's happening is how you make an informed decision. And Sarah and I were a a little looser this week than we were last week about our own decisions. And, you know, we're humans. We obviously have our own bias. But the reason that we make these decisions is because we're informed with the information and education that we have done and that we hope you feel you have now from the facts and the science on these vaccines. And we're not here to tell you what to do. We're not medical professionals. And I was kind of like reflecting as you were talking and I was like, oh, I don't know, like, <laughs> would that have been better in the Patreon? And and the fact is like, you, I hope, are making decisions based on fact and information that you're being presented with and not like, oh, Stacy and Sarah said they're going to do it, therefore I'll do it. And we, I mean, I, I appreciate the trust that you give us with that. <laughs> yeah. But um, I, I know for me, my decision is based off of my own personal health, my own family's needs. And I think about this from the perspective of someone like my mom, who does carry an EpiPen, but we only know that she has one allergy. And I think about how if she's sitting in a chair and she can be prepared for a potential anaphylactic reaction and tell her medical professionals that under supervision, is that worth the risk for her to not then have um, a a body that is more sensitive potentially be exposed to COVID? Um, You know, in, in an age group that is higher risk, that's a decision that she has to make with her medical professionals based on the information. And that's what we're here to present to you today. Like, I can't in any sort of way suggest that because Sarah and I have made a decision that when we can, this is something we would do, that's n- that's not us telling you to do it. So I just kind of like wanted to clarify, but also to say, like, we are doing everything that we can to present you with all of the information. We're We're telling you there are some adverse reactions and you need to decide if that's something that you want to look more into, you want to learn more about, or you're like, oh, that's what that was. It's it, it, Maybe you feel it got blown out of proportion on whatever media source you were reading, and now you feel like you have fact to go investigate some more kind of thing. And we completely understand that there are a lot of pervasive myths about vaccines in general, as well as the COVID-19 vaccines, which is why we have um, based these two shows entirely in fact. I'll sort of remind our audience, we didn't talk about it this show, but we've, we started this with 29 pages of, I started this with 29 pages of notes, um, and all of the scientific references are uh, going to be included in the show notes, um, so you can go to the sources and have a look, but that's why we've taken great care to keep these shows entirely rooted in the data as well as as much of a full picture of the data as we can um, so that um, you really understand 
the the entire profile in terms of um, the vaccine safety and efficacy and subgroup analysis um, to make the best choice for you. Um, and so we're really trying to center this entire conversation on the scientific evidence, on the data, on the facts, and um, not not enter it from a um, position of fear or fear-mongering, of anxiety, of, um, of judgment, of um, any sort of emotional bias that um, is often brought to these types of conversations, frankly. Um, we've tried very hard while being very open and honest about our own choices based on the data. Um, you know, again, I probably won't be able to get the vaccine until phase two because autoimmune disease, despite having four of them, is not a high-risk condition that would qualify me under phase 1C. That's okay. I will get this vaccine uh, as, as soon as as soon as it's available to me, and I will wait my turn patiently with lots of masks and hand washing and social distancing in the meantime, and on the other side of it, um, to be a responsible citizen. Um, but those are our choices based on this data, and the more important goal of this episode was to share this data with you um, so that you can have as broad and full of a picture of the information um, as, you know, we are all entitled to this, this type of education. Um, and so hopefully this, this podcast has served that purpose. If you have follow-up questions or there are specific myths that you are concerned about that you would like us to bust or confirm, potentially, sometimes myths are confirmed, um, you know, you can submit questions to the podcast on our website. You can um, reply on uh, the, our social media shares or our newsletters where we talk about the podcast. And obviously, the best way to get your questions answered on the show is to ask them uh, within our Patreon fam because, um, you know, obviously, just I'm just saying, Pat Patreon fam totally get the inside. Let me just tell scoop. you, they corner me for answers on <laughs> the Patreon questions. Like, yeah. I'll get hit up via email. And if I don't respond right away, you guys will message me. <laughs> like, yep. I'm like, okay. So we are serious about making sure that um, that community who, um, I think it's $5 a month supporting us gets priority over, you know, re responsive answers. Not that we're trying to not answer everybody else, just sometimes life. Um, which All by the, the life. I was going to say, which by the way, I haven't even had a chance to mention, but today a foster kiddo is coming into our home and the challenges with COVID are no joke. Um, because this kiddo is coming into care. And so there's like all these health screenings and things that the state has to do before they can enter the home, which I haven't had to do with the other kiddos who are already in the state's care. So let me just tell you, this situation is affecting all of life. Life, life is something right now. Um, <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready for Under it to be over. Understatement of the year. Yes. No, you are not ready for life to be over. Come on. No, 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 no. <laughs> Just because I'm over the virus doesn't mean the virus is over. That's what I was alluding to. Uh -huh. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Uh, well, thanks for listening. Um, please, again, we are absolutely willing to do a, a follow-up FAQ show if that is something that you would find helpful. So please just interact with us wherever you enjoy interacting with us. Um, and we will try to put those questions together. Um, and as always, we'll be back next week. 
Do you love the Whole View podcast? We'd love for you to leave us a review wherever you listen and share a podcast with your friends and family. And did you know that you can now get exclusive behind-the-scenes content on Patreon for less than the price of an almond milk matcha a month? Your Patreon membership supports us and gets you access to a monthly bonus episode. But not for kids' ears, because our bonus content is explicit. You can find us as The Whole View on Patreon for our real, unfiltered thoughts on this week's episode. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.